Hello, and welcome to Introducing Me. I'm your host, Sarah. I started this podcast to get to know other people and lifestyles while discovering more about myself. Each episode, I will give a new guest a chance to discuss their background, culture, interests, or whatever they want to talk about to help increase all of our own worldviews. Today, I would like to introduce you to Christopher Scott Wyatt. He is an autistic self-advocate with two neurodivergent daughters. He also has ADHD and physical disabilities. And he created the blog, The Autistic Me in 2007, and he received his doctorate in 2010, which included projects on autism and instructional technology. And I've had a great little bit of time here talking to Scott this evening before we hit record. So thank you so much for being here, Scott. Why don't you go ahead and tell the audience a little bit more about yourself? Well, I am a self-described advocate for the disabled, especially the neurodiverse out of necessity. I was born in 1968, a Franklin breach birth, and that caused a brachial plexus tear, which means I'm paralyzed partially on the right side. And during delivery, there was an incursion of the left frontal lobe with forceps, which did neurological damage to the front uh, of the brain, which obviously had lingering effects. So I have grown up with a mix of physical and neurological differences that presented challenges throughout my educational experiences, my social experiences, and life in general. Growing up in the 1970s, there weren't a lot of supports. The Americans with Disabilities Act, the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, many of the things that we take for granted did not exist. It was very common, not just in the United States, but globally, to look at children from their economic backgrounds, their caste in some systems, and judge them by that parental background. In my case, I have written about and spoken about teachers saying, oh, well, you're just trailer park trash, you're broken, you're never going to go to college, don't worry, you know, you're not worth the worry and effort that we would have to put into you. And in some ways, that negativity that I experienced in elementary school became my motivation to succeed in education, to succeed as a student and then as an individual. Each time I've been told that something can't happen or shouldn't happen, I'm one of the people out there saying, why not? I think that I took those experiences coming from the lower socioeconomic background and the disabled background, and I, I harnessed that anger to help me through. And I also think it made me more sensitive to the things I was seeing around me. I grew up in a small community called Ivanhoe, California, which is about 90% uh, Mexican-American. There was a lot of single language or bilingual households that were not primarily English. My grandmother and my aunt were farm workers for Sunkissed Citrus, so they spent their days sorting oranges and lemons in a packing house. So growing up in that background gave me, I think, a different insight and awareness to what even my friends were going through when they were being told, oh, well, look at yourself you know, have you noticed that your name is Moreno or Garcia or Hernandez? And well, you're not going to go to college. And so I kept seeing these things and thinking those of us who are able to get through this 
maze that they have created in our educational system and our cultural supports, we need to become advocates, even when it's not our primary job. So even though I consider myself first and foremost something else, I believe I have an obligation to those who come from similar backgrounds or far worse backgrounds to speak up and use my position now of admitted privilege as a white male who's taught at universities to say, hey, wait a minute, what you see isn't what you're getting. You know, I think I, I owe it to speak up and say, you're making assumptions about me because you see me, but let's break those down. Now let's think about everyone else around us and how we need to break those assumptions down. So I bring that with me as my, I, I wouldn't say a burden, but certainly an obligation. I feel that I have to speak out when I see something that I know is not just and reasonable. And along the way, my wife and I decided that we would become parents when that was not going to happen through uh, natural means. We decided to become foster and adopt parents. So we brought into our lives in 2015, two wonderful girls who are our daughters. And we were their first foster placement and then we adopted them. So I've been raising two neurodiverse daughters, and I think that has given me uh, even more insights into how little has changed since the 1970s and 80s. I, I hate to say it, but one reason I'm still so outspoken is now I see that here we are in 2023, and my daughters are experiencing the same biases and prejudices that I experienced, and... It's frustrating to see how little progress has been made despite legal protections or so-called social changes. We can tout our advances as a culture, and we have made many advances, and yet at the same time, those advances are often masking a failure to make advances outside of little niches. As we were talking pre-episode, pre I, I guess we could say, we're talking about our perceptions of various places. And my wife and I were both born and raised in Central California. So when the chance came to, to do my PhD work in Minnesota, we're like, wow, Minnesota. And I already knew there was a large Somali population, a large African-American population in the Twin Cities. There was a vibrant um, arts culture in the Twin Cities, obviously with the Guthrie and other venues and wonderful music. Um, nightlife in the Twin Cities. So we, oh yeah, let's let's go. It's going to be wonderful. It'll be like California, but with, with snow. And it wasn't. The university was incredibly homogenous. And it was so disappointing as a Californian where the University of California, the private university I attended, the University of Southern California, these institutions in California pride themselves on their diversity constantly promoting, oh, 40% of our population is on scholarship and what percentage are from international locations. So we got to Minnesota thinking the University of Minnesota, my gosh, it's almost 60,000 students. This is going to be amazing. And it was the most vanilla, bland, generic experience on earth so I found myself out in the community doing things because the university was while talking a progressive message, while promoting diversity and talking from 
what we might call the social left or whatever, and having all these wonderful programs. In practice, it was not. It was not bringing in the community. There were no special scholarships for the Hmong or the Somali students. There was no outreach to the residents of St. Paul or Minneapolis or Minnetonka or Chan Hansen. This was a it was an island of of generic blandness within a diverse city. And so I felt I had to speak out and I had to say, what is going on here? Our faculty all look the same. They're all upper middle class, you know, generally speaking, white. Yes, there were more women than men in certain departments, but but we are talking a very generic experience, a very um, disappointing experience for someone who believes in diversity. Disability services was being cut while I was there. So you're going to get rid of the disability um, community, the disabled voices. So I, I just found it so disappointing. And yet, as I said, that has been my experience. We talk about all the changes these laws, these rules, these recruiting efforts have, have made, and deep down, nothing's changed. We've masked over it, and we know we masked over it because we went from one president that we kept saying, oh, this signifies radical change and progress. Yeah, we know what happened. What was really happening was we were masking over just how horrible the differences are and how stratified, how stratified our nation is. That for all of the cities that live in this vibrance and diversity, they're masking really the inequality and the lack of diversity that occurs even in our major cities within the, the controlling interests. We, we just mask it over. And so that's why I speak out. So what sort of things do you do to speak out and advocate for yourself, your children, and others? First off, obviously, I started the blog in 2007 when Blogger was cutting edge, um, which dates me. Before that, I was on bulletin boards and on the Usenet and out there speaking. I was I speak to schools. I speak to higher education institutions. I do speak to some corporate clients. I obviously have taken that blog to a point where if someone wants to, to set up a, an appointment, they can say, we want you to come here and, and speak. You've mentioned you are near the state capitol there in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. I have spoken to the ADA Mid-Atlantic outside of Harrisburg, where it was a regional conference. That was during the Obama administration. Things like that give me an opportunity to speak to policymakers, to speak to individuals who are trying to implement the laws in ways that actually produce change. Again, those aren't my primary job, but I certainly will take every opportunity. If a school asks, if a business asks, thankfully enough do, that I'll do it virtually, I'll do it in person. I will be out there to say, I want to be considered more than a disabled individual, an autistic individual, um, you know, someone with physical and neurological differences, but I want them to see me, to hear me, to hear my experiences as a student, as an educator, and now as a parent uh, for the last, uh, you know, many years. Um, I want to be out there and, and sharing those. And it is so unfortunate that I can open a door because I have been a professor, um, because I have been uh, an instructor, 
and I am that white male on the surface, it gets me through the door to say things that I can then bring along other voices with me. And I think that's also a part of what I'll do is when I get invited to a panel, I'll say, wonderful, but if you're going to have me on this panel, I want these two other voices. You know, so if I happen to know some uh, in that area or for that conference, some uh, people of color, uh, some women and minority voices that need to be heard, I will always try to do that as well. And, and I think that's part of how I have taken this as a father to two daughters who I want their world to be different. I want to make sure I'm as inclusive when I'm asked to speak as possible too. So I think that responsibility is is there. And, and that's what I do. I I take in almost any and every opportunity. If someone calls and or emails and says, will you speak to our university, our school district? There are very, very, very few times I would turn an opportunity down. And when I have, it's it's been for other reasons. But generally speaking, I won't turn an opportunity down. I, I think we say yes to as many times as people will listen to us. And so what sort of things do you share when you talk to universities and various things? Are you sharing like about your personal experiences? I generally start with Q&A. If, if someone wants to have a, a scripted intro, I can. I do talk about that. I have I have talked at uh, vocational rehab positions uh, about what is it like to be someone with a palsy and how does that affect hiring? Um, so if I go in knowing what they want to hear, I can tailor it accordingly. So if someone says, please speak to us how your physical disabilities have affected your employment. I have talked about how my palsy, which causes my right arm to shake and causes me to twitch. You can't see it. It's off camera and Obviously, this is going to be on audio, but I have actually had a supervisor doing an interview saying, your tapping is distracting me. Like, well, this is a palsy attack, and now it's getting worse because I'm under stress. Well, we don't think that will work for our clients. It would probably distract them. And so I can talk about that from that perspective. If someone wants to talk about parenting, I've done that. I had a high school in St. Cloud, Minnesota, asked me to come talk about relationships because what they were trying to figure out is how to integrate disabilities into their family life program for the high schools. And that was a wonderful question. They said, we have not had autistics or disabled people come and talk about relationships, but you're married and have kids. So could you talk about that? So it's pretty much open to what they want to talk about. And as I said, if I can get someone else to appear too, that sometimes helps. But it, it has been a full spectrum of what people want to discuss. It can go from the very superficial to, you know, considering how do you plan your day as an autistic? How do you, how do you do scheduling? How do you deal with executive function issues like time management, like space management? Uh, or it can be something very personal. What is a relationship with your wife look like? How do you function as a couple or as parents? So again, it very much depends on what what is needed for that moment of advocacy. Right. And you just shared that, I, I want to call it awful example of the palsy attack, like during an interview, like that should not have happened. Um, can you share a little bit about what it's like being autistic and as you were just saying, kind of like the day-to-day -day functions, because you have a job, you have a career, but then you're also doing all of this advocacy work. And so it sounds like you have a lot going on. 
So the the primary diagnostic criteria for autism include communications disorders, executive function deficits, and sensory input challenges. In my case, I definitely have all of the above. I don't always make eye contact well. I don't always handle interpersonal communications um, in the best possible way. I had to learn idioms, so I have memorized sayings. My wife and I were talking today. Um, President Biden today quickly said, there's no there there. And so I was looking up in a, the idiom on the dictionary, you know, on the uh, scholastic guide to idioms that I have on my shelf and saying, what does there's no there there mean? You know, found out it came from Gertrude Stein. She was talking about the city of Oakland. It meant that they had destroyed everything. So there was no longer a there there, but now it means something entirely different. There's no substance. So I look up idioms. I look up parts of speech and memorize them. I memorize human body language. I have a lot of books on micro expressions. And so I have taught myself how to guide myself through those social situations. When I'm teaching or speaking, I'm often looking above the class, but no one's ever noticed. It's kind of a great thing about being on stage or at a podium is no one knows if you're making eye contact with them. They just assume you're looking around the room, so everything's fine. Um, which made teaching an uh, kind of an excellent choice because you actually aren't one-on-one -on -one with anybody. You're one-on-30. Um, it's just a lot easier. And so I found coping strategies that make that work. Podcasting, blogging. I don't have to interact so much as I wait for people to email me. I can think about the email, get back to the email. Uh, as a freelance writer, which is my primary career, uh, freelance editing and writing, also some uh, statistical analyses that I do. Again, people email me stuff. People give me data to analyze. People you know, ask me to look at things, and I, and I work from the PhD in rhetoric and qualitative and quantitative analyses. So for me, my, my autism is ameliorated by careful planning. Calendars everywhere. Long before there was an iPhone, I had a a Palm Pilot. Before the Palm Pilot, I had a Day Runner. You know, I always have my calendars in clear notebooks, the type that anyone who remembers the old Trapper Keeper type, it has a clear sheet that you can put in to replace the cover. So I always put in my calendar so I could see my calendar on the outside of my binder. That's how I managed to not miss too many classes in school. I have calendars on the wall, calendars posted everywhere alarms that go off. I have two alarms in the morning for different things. Just like my daughters have checklists on their bathroom mirror, I have checklists of what I need to do. So if my morning routine gets off, I do get stressed. I do have that typical autistic panic. Uh, so those things are what I talk about when I'm talking to groups who ask about survival as an autistic. It's a very rigid, structured day. Your calendar um, entry has been coming up all morning, you know, all afternoon, all evening for me, reminding me, okay, 5.30, get in, check the computer, you know, make sure things are working, make sure your camera's on, make sure the... So I had the, these alerts and a checklist to make sure everything was working properly. For me, that's, that's life. And a lot of people say, well, I could never live with these calendars everywhere and these reminders and these alerts. Um, 
but that is part of being autistic. The social challenges, I found careers and paths that certainly were not going to put me in um, customer-facing retail. I'm not going to be the person wandering the floor at Neiman Marcus selling a suit and or or selling cars at a car lot. I know that. It's just I know that about myself. Um, charm is not one of the things autism uh, normally includes. And what I found was I could even turn the the uh, lack of good awareness of humor into humor just by being honest. I found that people like honesty and they'll laugh at it thinking you're being funny um, because you're just being blunt. And so I have sometimes found that the blunt nature of, of my autism works really well with audiences because they think it's humor. Um, I know there's a stand-up comic who has talked about this as well. And um, she's very correct when she says that honesty makes people laugh, especially when it's painful honesty, uh, coming from an autistic perspective. Uh, I assume, uh, you know, your show is, I assume, geared towards all audiences. Uh, but when someone at a conference says, well, how were you and your wife trying to have a child? It was like, well, how do you think we were trying to? Sex was involved. And you find that audiences laugh and you're like, I, I don't understand the, you know, apparently this is funny, but yes, we were having sex to have a kid. That's how, what we were doing. Yes. And, and so that breaks down things and they find it funny, but it's just as an autistic, I'm sitting there thinking I'm giving you the truth, but apparently this is good standup material. So it, you find ways to work around the autistic deficits and, and harness them in a positive way. And so what does your wife think of like how you live your day-to-day -day life? Because you mentioned that, you know, some people are like, I couldn't live with all of the calendars. So for her, is it a big change? I married an aeronautical and mechanical engineer. You cannot get more organized. You cannot get more checklist oriented. Alphabetize everything, spreadsheet for everything. Everything goes through safety checks. I think our house could go through 9001 certification, right? I, I think we could get ISO certification for having manuals and policies and procedures in place. That, that's, that has been very complimentary to my needs is to have someone who likes dinner at a specific time, who likes the routine at a specific time. My wife and I, um, we trade off duties. So during certain days of the week, I'm taking our daughters to swim lessons or to music lessons or to doctor's appointments. She's in charge of Girl Scouts. So she has two Girl Scout troops and it's cookie season. She has spreadsheets. She has the cookie sorted. She knows the map they're taking. So they hit all the houses. It's almost, it, it's sort of the perfect combination of personalities for who and what we are. And so then what has it been like raising your daughters? I think the best thing about raising two neurodiverse daughters has been the ability to go into school meetings, medical meetings, therapy appointments with the knowledge of what I went through so I can give voice sometimes to the experiences that the daughters are trying to explain to me. Uh, we, I call them uh, Lee and Anne for purposes of our podcast. We, they chose their names, as it were, for public use. 
And Lee is um, Lee is an amazing young woman. She is getting ready for middle school next year, so she's already set her whole life plan. She knows where she wants to go to college. She knows what she wants to do each day. And what I find myself doing is telling her, look, I know these things cause me stress. I have to know what's happening in five years. So let's talk about ways to cope with this stress. Let's talk about ways to cope with your need for order and organization. Let's talk about ways that you can be in groups, but still do your own thing. So my experiences allow me to sit down with her and help her by saying, okay, Daddy went through this. Let me tell you what I do. Now, you may not do the same, and let's talk to mommy about it, but but let's see if I can help reduce your stress and anxiety. With, with Anne, it's a whole different story. Her ADHD and some of her other symptoms are sort of off the charts from where I was. Um, she is always in motion. She is a physical, as they say, a force of nature. And so I'm not quite familiar with that, always needing to be doing sports or physical running and things like that. But understanding her sensory needs, understanding what causes her to have overload, understanding those, I can still advocate for her. And then I also know how to ask her questions. So I think being being neurodiverse myself lets me communicate with them and on their behalf with them um in a more i think respectful way when we go to the doctor i will often say why don't you answer that question why don't you say how you feel and i'm trying to empower them as much as i can because what i learned was i had to be my own advocate a lot of times so i'm trying to teach them from a very young age uh from 3rd grade and 5th grade now how to be their own advocates, how to tell a teacher, excuse me, I didn't understand what you just said. Were you being sarcastic? Is that an idiom? I didn't catch that. You know, is there something I'm missing? So I'm, I think by going through my experiences and telling them you're going to have to be your own advocate, it is a mixed message. I do have people telling me, oh, you should be advocating for the school to change, not for your daughters to change. Or you should be advocating for the band to change, not your daughters to change. But as I said at the beginning, the reality is we mask a lot of things that really haven't changed. So I tell my daughters these things and I say, you're going to have to speak up and let me tell you how you might do that by writing a note or by actually speaking or, or taking a stand. And I think that's made me a much better parent is that understanding that for all of the talk of how things have changed, I can tell my daughters, no, you're going to have to speak up and keep fighting. I'm sorry. And here's how we might fight effectively in a way that reduces conflict, but still helps you. You mentioned that, you know, the natural ways of uh, having a child did not work for you. So you ended up going to the foster route and ended up adopting so did your girls come to you at a young age and like, were they together? Yes, they're sisters. They are biological sisters. They are 14, 15 months apart. And so they were about two and three when they came to us. So they were little. We were their first placement. And now they're in fifth grade and third grade. So we have seen them through all of Head Start, you know, kindergarten all the way through fifth grade now. We've been through everything. 
Uh, the youngest was nonverbal when she arrived, so she didn't speak. So we've been through the first words. Um, still remember her first word as, as now. She likes to celebrate it because it was bubbles. She wanted bubbles in the bath. So, you know, you remember those things because they were first. And so in many ways, even though we didn't have um, the experience of, of natural childbirth, my wife likes to say we had the four-year uh, experience of foster to adopt, which was a very long gestation period. And just in some ways, emotionally, I think just as difficult because you're always going to court. You had caseworkers coming into your house every week. You had court hearings about whether or not they would get reunited with family or a kinship adoption or find another placement. So there were all these emotional drains for four years, not just for nine months, but literally four years. Are these kids going to be ours or are they going to be taken away? You know, every every few months we were wondering, were they going to be removed? So in some ways it was very difficult, but every path is different and we're glad that we we took the path we we did and we have we have a wonderful family yes and to have been able to you know be able to start advocating for them when they were so young i think is 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 really great to hear um because you know you you took them in knowing you know your personal experiences that you had with neurodiversity and I had hoped when we brought them into our house, I had I was under the illusion, having taught about special needs, about special ed, having done conferences at schools, at universities, I was under the impression that, okay, K-12 had, had surely gotten better. And to find out that K-12, whether it's Pennsylvania or Texas or California or Minnesota, that, that these systems have not improved has really been a, a call to action. It's been disappointing and frustrating to listen to the stories of other parents on my podcast or when I speak to groups and parents have questions. It is so heartbreaking that I am telling parents the same things my parents heard 40 years ago. It's, it's just, it's heartbreaking that we have papered over everything with laws and mandates that, I, I don't know how else to say it. it. Heartbreaking is the only word for it. It is. Now, taking a little bit of a turn from this conversation, and since you've mentioned it a couple of times, you know, having worked in a university and your experience, can you take us through kind of your education and your career path? I have an undergraduate degree. Well, I have a double major in journalism and English from the University of Southern California. My goal at that time was to work for a newspaper. I thought newspapers are booming. This is going to be so wonderful. And and then a recession hit and newspapers closed right and left. When I was in college, there was an LA Herald Examiner. Um, there was Los Angeles Times, the Orange County Register, Torrance Daily Breeze. It was around the University of Southern California. There were probably 15 dailies. I don't know how many still exist, but it's certainly not 15. In Pittsburgh, 
I don't know how familiar you are with the media market there, but there were two daily newspapers. Now there's really only one in the Twin Cities. We watched what happened uh, with the Pioneer and the Pioneer Press and the Star Tribune. We, it's just, we have watched companies like Gannett, McClatchy, slowly just gobble up regional newspapers and then shut them down, take them online only. Um, so I decided, okay, I'll change paths. I'll go the digital route. My experience uh, at USC included working at ABC as an intern. So I thought I'll go digital. I started studying digital rhetoric, digital media. My master of fine arts is in film and digital media. My MA is uh, rhetoric of stage and screen. I got very interested in how messages are sent that affect economic decisions. When I say economics, that's something that I love to correct people on. Economics is not about money. Economics as a field is the study of allocation. It can be the allocation of human time, the allocation of resources, the allocation of money. There are six forms of capital and economic studies, all six. But I got very interested in how media stories uh, kind of teach us about allocation and encourage us to allocate ourselves in certain ways. And so when I did my PhD, I was very interested in the rhetoric of economics and then how it applies to disability services and, and finances and needs. You know, how we depict disability in our media will determine whether or not people want to hire disabled people, whether they want to associate with disabled people. Do they see us as valuable human capital? Do they value our time? Do they value our energy? And so that's sort of where I ended up was still with media, but with that interest in these economic decisions of investment. And that led me obviously to public policy and data analysis of where is this, where is this line between what a, a focus group tells you and what they actually do? Where's this line between a survey uh, polling and what the actual voter does? And what we found in media studies, there's a, a wonderful economist, Itzhak Gilboa, who studied the rhetoric on the floor of the Israeli Knesset before wars and found that the words being used were more predictive of what was going to happen than focus groups or polling or sampling. The language was more predictive. So that's why I got into rhetoric. It's Quantitative rhetoric, counting how many times someone says something negative, counting how many times someone nods versus shakes their head, and coding it into a database and looking at that. So now as my career path, I advise writers and publishers, uh, sometimes politicians, political groups, companies on messaging because they'll conduct a survey and get one result, but the result doesn't reflect what consumers are actually doing. Oh, consumers say they want more choice, and you give them more choice, and studies have found that they actually buy less. You give them more than 31 flavors of ice cream, suddenly decision paralysis kicks in. So how do you separate what people tell you from what they really do? So that was my career path, was started in journalism. Journalism went belly up, um, to, to borrow the, the the phrase. I think we still see that today. Um Today, CNN is laying off more. I saw MSNBC is laying off 75 staffers. I have seen my friends who worked at the LA Times laid off. My friends who have worked at CNN 
don't work there anymore. And I found that what I was learning about media had other uses and especially quantitative data. There aren't that many people who love spreadsheets and love SPSS or SAS and love uh, those are our data analysis programs that many of us use in data science and big data and economics. And I just love it. I love to look at the data and tell someone, you know, what you think the people are telling you isn't what they're really telling you. All these predictions about how voters were going to vote in November proved to be inaccurate. But people weren't listening to the voters. They were doing quick telephone surveys and quick analysis and historical analyses and saying, okay, Republicans are going to win a 40-seat majority in the House. They're going to gain three seats in the Senate. And it's like, well, wait, what is this based on? Oh, well, we're doing telephone surveys. Now, I don't know about you. I don't know your, your age or your background, but I can tell you my daughters don't answer phones. I, most of my students do not answer a phone. They just don't. They text. Uh, landline surveys are pointless. And so that's what interests me is how people are thinking they're getting all these meaningful data points when really uh, someone like myself likes to go in and my autistic traits and my passion kicks in, as I'm sure you can hear. I love sitting at home, staring at a screen saying, ooh, my data are saying something entirely different. And People ask, well, how does that play into fiction and movies and other things I've worked on? After all, the MFA is film and digital technology. Well, someone might come to me and say, I want a book that's going to sell well with young adults. And I can look at all of the BookSense data, the New York Times data, the StoryGraph data, and I can start looking at that data and saying, well, right now the trends with young adults are these things. Oddly enough, if you want to sell more books right now, get it banned. And so we can sit down and say, okay, well, what subjects will best hit that top selling list? And so we can talk about how diversity now for Simon & Schuster, for HarperCollins, uh, Young Adult Press, we can say, okay, let's look at these numbers and see what is getting sold and why. And it turns out the old saying is true, all publicity is good publicity. Uh, the, I'll bring up an easy example, the book Mouse, wonderful graphic novel, features mice, it's about the Holocaust. It got banned and suddenly it was number 10 on Amazon. So I like to look at trends like that and, and that's how I use my, that's my career path is I, I take what was a love for reporting and journalism and I've turned it into an analysis of what people are consuming uh, sadly, I think this this field can be misused. We see that with um, BuzzFeed, with other things that create what are better known as clickbait. Sometimes it's called uh, dark web uh, UI. Uh, dark design bothers me where it's opt out instead of opt in to get them to accidentally click to a monthly subscription things that you'll never believe the top 10 reasons, people, whatever. These, if, it, if a headline says you'll never believe, just don't click it kind of thing. So I've seen journalism go that way, and it really breaks my heart to see something I was so passionate about because of growing up in the 70s and 80s, wanting to see journalism as this great revealer of truth. And what I see is, as an, now as a data analyst looking at it, 
Trump can lie all he wants, and he's going to win uh, the the nomination again if he is the if he is running for various statistical reasons that people just don't want to admit. And and that's heartbreaking in some way, but you've got to uh, we we need to tell the media. MSNBC telling us all the things wrong with Trump isn't going to hurt Trump. And so that's why my path, I think, is so enlightening in some ways, as I have found that my my blind faith that as a reporter, I could report the facts on education, report the facts on disability, and wow, I'm going to change minds. It turns out the single greatest predictor of whether or not someone supported gay marriage in the 1980s was whether or not they watched Will and Grace. Oh, well. How do I compete against that? So you say, okay, we need to re reevaluate our political campaigns and get celebrities out there who happen to be a part of the LGBTQA plus community. We need to get TV shows with positive uh, gay, lesbian, transgender characters. And you know, suddenly that becomes more important what people are entertained by than what the press is doing. So my path has been really eye-opening for me. It's been heartbreaking in some ways as someone who set out to be a journalist and finding out that what you report matters less than what people are entertained by. And I tell that to my daughters. I say, you're better off instead of focusing on your autism and your advocacy at the school board, entertain your teacher, tell your teacher things, tell your classmate things, because the school board can pass whatever policy they want. Real change is, is through that individual interaction and that individual familiarity. A, a wonderful article in The Atlantic yesterday talked about the studies that have shown that diversity, equity, and inclusion aren't working. They're actually having the opposite effect. And research has shown that the more you tell someone that what's wrong with Trump, the more, the more they cling to Trump. The more you tell someone they're a racist, the more they cling to racist ideals. And this is very hard for us to accept. Those of us who think I'm bringing the truth to someone to find out that the more we bring them the truth, the more they fight the truth. That, that's heartbreaking. So, But then you tell them, but you know what? Someone who watches or watches sports and then sees um, black commentators and commentators who have come out as openly gay, those things change more minds than all the laws and regulations we pass. And it's, it's, it's stunning, and I think we need to use that knowledge to our, to our benefit because all the training you do, all the let's sit down and talk about what anti-racism is, unfortunately it leads to what's going on in Florida this week with 28 colleges and universities today announcing they're going to get rid of or phase out various forms of black studies. We see what uh, Governor Yunkin today announced in Virginia, which is a reevaluation of many of their programs. Uh, that's going to affect the University of Virginia and other higher education institutions because they are state institutions. We're seeing this in Texas with what I consider outright attacks on uh certain communities, the LGBTQA plus community, it turns out the best thing that could happen is if they could just have a friend or an entertainment outlet that exposes them to people and teaches them that they're all, you know, the more you expose people to ways in which we're similar instead of ways in which we're different, the more cooperation you get. 
And that knowledge has been really eye-opening as I've worked on campaigns and, I've, and as I've worked as an advocate. And I appreciate you sharing all of those like statistics and facts and things that you have learned and seen. I think it's all very fascinating um, when you talk about, you know, kind of like expectation versus reality and, and what actually brings change. I think the reason I bring up the University of Minnesota being so plain vanilla is that studies have shown the greatest thing you can do to increase tolerance is to be around other people. Right. As I said, training won't do it. Training does not do it. Um, we have chosen to live in a northern Austin suburb here in Texas that is about as diverse as you can get. Uh, we have a new Islamic center that just opened. We have a wonderful Sikh center that just opened. I went to uh, I went to the robotics competition for the middle schools, and it looked like a UN convention. I love it. That's what I wanted, and that's what I wanted for my children. But people who grow up in these enclaves, and I don't care if it's an enclave of a private school in New York or the University of Minnesota in the Twin Cities or the private Catholic schools of Pittsburgh, those enclaves become a problem. In Pittsburgh, if you had the money, you were sending your child to Central Catholic because it was the private Catholic school known for its football teams. It's, But it's it's yes, it's in the heart of Pittsburgh, but now you have undone all the diversity of the public schools. So when you go to Westinghouse High in Pittsburgh, it's almost all black, uh, with um, a slight, in, a slightly increasing population now of uh, Latino, Latina, Latine um, population, and um, but I believe the number was it was a little bit closer to ninety percent black, and then you get to. Central Catholic, which is almost all white. And it's like by pulling their kids out of the public schools and going to this private school, but saying, oh, we're progressive, we're voting the right way, we're going to fight for, you know, a democratic governor. And but your kids go into an all white school. So your child isn't getting that diversity that I wanted. I wanted my children to have. I want my children to be around people unlike themselves. I'm from a family that is multiracial. Uh, multi-ethnic in other ways, that's tolerant in other ways. You know, my my cousins, I have uh, cousins who are part of the LGBTQA plus community. I have colleagues who are transgender. This is what I want my children to experience because all the laws in the world won't make them open-minded. What will make them open-minded is having a best friend who uses they, them pronouns. That's what will make my children better people. Yes, I definitely agree with that. And when we were talking earlier about kind of like why I started this podcast, like one of my things was like, so I can meet and and talk to people and, and help, you know, my understanding of all of this. It's really important to me. So when Lee wanted to take music, we decided to skip the school program and we went to School of Rock. School of Rock is, well, just like in the movie, it is a real thing, this, this approach to teaching music. It's somewhat similar to the Suzuki method of pick up an instrument, let's play. We'll worry about music theory later. And we had a choice of instructor, and we chose Sid. Sid is a they-them. Sid is a wonderful human being who's 19 years old. Sid has a green mohawk currently. Sid is 
an amazing, amazing mentor and influence on Lee. And Lee doesn't think twice about Sid being they. And that's something that we can do in Austin that we could not do in southwestern Pennsylvania. Oh, gosh, no. I just was no. Uh-uh. And, and that's hard to explain to people. When, when we say we live in Texas, we live in Austin, uh, we live in a, a suburb called Hutto, and they have shirts that say, keep Hutto hip, and the, the slogan of Austin is, keep Austin weird. And that really is a, an environment in which we think our children will become better people. And living in these suburbs, I think, is valuable for them, where our neighbors are Again, so diverse that it's just a it's a wonderful experience. It scares me that we are re-segregating in our major cities. Data show that the greatest wealth disparities are actually in New York, San Francisco, Chicago. So it's ironically progressive enclaves that are self-segregating, charter schools, private schools, best neighborhoods, worst neighborhoods. And it's just heartbreaking to me that the very people who claim to be open-minded and progressive have, you know, they they often engage in microaggressions without even realizing it. They don't realize their experiences aren't normal. I remember sitting in a university class and the professor was talking about his sabbatical and how awful it was. You know, he only got a sabbatical every three or four years, and this year he'd only be able to go to Italy for so long. And I'm sitting there thinking, my grandmother, the farm worker, never got a vacation. What the heck do you know about diversity? You're whining about every three years as a tenured faculty member with whatever title you have, you get to go to Italy? And it just turned me off. It made me it made me somewhat resentful. And I could see other students thinking the same thing. Faculty getting a sabbatical just makes the, the poor student struggling first generation think, what world do you live in? This isn't normal for working class families. Working class families don't get a year to sit and write a book. And this tension between higher ed and the, 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 the people they say they want to represent is ongoing. And it's, it's, I have argued that the the faculty often fail the simplest test of diversity. Do you support your adjuncts, who are often women, people of color, and first-generation graduates? Your poor contingent faculty is often the very people who need you most, and you're busy protecting your tenure, and you're not out there supporting an adjunct union, a contingent union. You're not out there supporting better working conditions for your support staff. Um, and yet you're busy writing books about anti-racism. Stop it. You know, and, and so that's where I'm coming from as a disabled person, too. I, I met so many professors of disability studies who aren't disabled that it confused me. My my Chicano cultures class, which is what it was called at the time, as 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 these words change, and I think that's important, too. We should let groups decide their terms. So Chicano cultures eventually became... Uh, Hispanic studies, which eventually became uh, Latin studies. And I think we need to let groups do that. But my professor of Chicano studies at USC was Professor McKenna, who had no, no idea what I was talking about. I wrote a paper on the importance of the Catholic faith among the United Farm Workers membership. And I was told, there is no way a church is that important to workers. 
the Catholic Church is key to political movements in the Spanish-speaking culture. It's key. But because Professor McKenna was from whatever background, it was clearly not the same background. So that's why I wonder about universities and their lack of diversity on faculty. Then how in the world can you say you're you're teaching and embracing diversity. Your, your students don't look diverse and your faculty rarely are diverse. Yes, I think you're hitting some really great points um, and I've appreciated everything you've shared today. Um, but I am going to wrap things up. As I mentioned, I ask all of my guests a random question. So my question for you is simply, how many pillows do you sleep with? I believe there are four on my side of the bed. At least. Like all under your head? There are, well, there's three behind me. One props up two. In fact, one's a brand new one, a brand new uh, memory foam thing that's supposed to keep you cooler at night. We'll see. And there are two off to the side of me that I use. And, and the reason I think every pet owner will appreciate, I have a cat who is, I want to say she's 14, almost 15. And she adores sleeping between my wife and and, and me. And so I stack pillows so I can hug the pillows and she can be on the pillows next to me purring. So the pillows are for me and the cat to share so she can be in her favorite, between her favorite humans. All right, that brings this episode to a close. If you are interested in checking out Scott's blog or podcast, both of those links will be in the description. Also in the description is this podcast website. So that brings you, of course, to all of our past episodes and all the great resources and links from past guests and all of our social media, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. If you'd like to go follow those pages, that support is always appreciated. And if you'd like to support the podcast monetarily or be a guest on the show, you can email me and there are links there as well. So thank you so much, Scott, for spending time with me today and to my listeners for taking the time out of your day to hear a new story. Until next time, bye. Thank you so much for the opportunity.